0: Let's go to the Lord in prayer this morning. Holy and gracious are you, Father. We cannot possibly conceive, we cannot imagine your holy perfection. We know it's breathtaking, we know nothing else can compare. Lord, we yearn for the day when we will no longer be controlled by sin. We long for the day when we will behold your beauty in its fullness. Every day, we remember, we rejoice Jesus' atoning work. In Christ, we realize this sinful world no longer owns us. Every day, resurrection day is before us pointing to our future hope in you. But today, especially today, we are mindful of our future victory over sin and death. We remember precious Lamb of God dying in our place. We remember the suffering, the shame, the rejection, the cross. We remember the hopelessness and despair Seemingly a vanquished Messiah. We remember the cold, dank tomb, suitable only for decaying flesh. We remember the finality, the sealed tomb, soldiers guarding death. But thank God, today we celebrate a resurrection. We remember and we revel in new life that swallows up death. No longer hopeless, no longer dead, but alive. The first fruits of resurrection life. Your word says, By a man death came to all men, but by a man, the Son of Man, has come resurrection life. Hallelujah. What a Savior. What a plan. What a God. As we remember and as we rejoice and worship you, we pray that you would make your good news pierce our hearts. That you would do so today in a new and fresh way. For the one here today who is struggling to find hope, who's struggling trying to go it alone, trying to make sense of life, Through their own wisdom and ingenuity. For the one that believes this present world is their destination. For the one who knows only emptiness and despair. Fill them with your hope today. Make the gospel to break over our souls in a life-changing way. Bring new life. Enable them to believe on you and turn from sin and self. Lord, save today. Save from sin and its penalty. Give resurrection life today by the power of your spirit and through the work of your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Wow, what a day. What a Savior, what a plan that God has made. Stephen, Stephen was one of seven, the Scripture tells us, who was chosen to resolve a complaint, a complaint in the church. Imagine that, a complaint in the church. Acts 6-5 says he was a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Clearly, he was a man who trusted God he was a man content to obey God's will in joy verse 8 that Craig just read for you says that he was full of grace and power full of grace and power I don't know about you but I would that that would be the description of my life full of grace and power by the presence of God's spirit what does that mean Well, it means to be filled with joy. It means to be filled with pleasure, with delight, with sweetness, with charm, with loveliness and kindness. It's to be filled with God, to be filled and conformed to the image of Christ. He was not controlled by fear, hatred, animosity, or selfishness. He was filled with trust, with submission, gentleness, and tenderness. God's grace saturated his life. He was so full of God's grace that that grace overflowed the boundaries of his life and impacted, influenced, touched the lives of others around him. Make no mistake. Do not believe that because he's full of grace that he is weak. Grace enabled him to stand against persecution. It enabled him to face martyrdom and to do so with contentment. The scripture says that great wonders and signs were performed by this grace-filled vessel. Last week, we talked about faithful proclamation of the gospel. When the gospel is proclaimed faithfully, what did we say is going to happen? There's going to be persecution. There's going to be opposition. The enemy does not sleep. The enemy is not oblivious to what is going on. The enemy is not satisfied to let the word of God go forth without at least pushing back. The one thing we can be sure of is when the gospel is going forth, unapologetically, there will be opposition and persecution. It seems that those who were pushing back against Stephen were concerned. They were concerned that he was dismissing the Jewish history. They claimed that he was denigrating religious practices. They believed that he was exalting Jesus at the expense of Judaism. They were right. They were absolutely right. The problem they had is they did not understand the connection. You see, they saw Jesus as a competitor to God. Stephen argues that Jesus is not a competitor, but that he is God. That he is the promised one sent to do God's bidding. How does he do it? Well, Stephen's case is presented actually in four phases, four steps. There are four things coming out of the text this morning that helps us understand Stephen's argument. First of all, he tells us that Jesus indeed is the promised Messiah. Now, he does not reach all the way back to the original promise that began in Genesis 3.15. In the aftermath of sin and the fall in the Garden of Eden, The scripture says that God was pronouncing a curse. A curse that man and creation had brought upon itself. I will put enmity, he said to the serpent, between you and the woman. Between your offspring and her offspring. The seed. The seed of woman. He will bruise your head. That is, he will destroy you. While you bruise his heel. You will cause suffering. But God says, I will use the suffering in order to destroy evil. And then Stephen goes through this review of Jewish history. He goes to Abraham, called out, called out from a land of pagans by God. Abraham didn't need the Jewish rituals. He didn't need all of the symbolism and the religious artifacts All he needed was an encounter with God. That God called him out and gave him a promise, a promise to make him a great people, a promise of a land, a promise that through him and his descendants, God would bless all the world. He would bless the nations. He gave him a covenant, a sign, a seal of this promise. Then Stephen moves right into the grandson Jacob and the great-grandson Joseph. You see, in Jacob, he said, the promise began to blossom. Twelve sons given to Jacob. So this mighty nation, this mighty people that God has promised to Abraham begins to take place. But out of this nation, out of this people... There's one who is set aside. One whom God has earmarked who has chosen to be a deliverer. His name is Joseph. He says Joseph was betrayed by his own people. Joseph was rejected by his own people. And yet God used his betrayal and his rejection to providentially place him to be a deliverer for his people. What an incredible thing. And then he says, what about Moses? Moses also, chosen by God in unusual circumstances, made a deliverer for his people. Called and used by God to bring his people out of bondage. A mediator to deliver God's law, God's word. His ceremonial, sacrificial, and dietary laws. Stephen says, in every case, the people reacted poorly. The people reacted poorly. When God gives truth, people act in rebellion. Even God's own people, hearing and knowing the truth, rebelled against it. Why? Why? Because sin is prevalent. We're born in sin. We live in sin. We practice sin. We rehearse sin. And if truth be known, my friends, today we love sin. We love it like nothing else. The people reacted poorly. They doubted. They doubted God. They doubted the people, the deliverers that God sent. And they rejected. Even to the point that they made a God after their own desires. They raised up and made an idol according to their own desires, according to their own pleasures, their own ingenuity. They said, here's a God we can worship. And clearly putting him in the place of God, this golden calf. God gave them through Moses not only... Deliverance, but he gave them stipulations, a law, how to conduct themselves as his people. And they displayed sinful, rebellious actions. And God allowed them to have their desires. He said, this is what you want. This is what you get. What it did was produce further exile and bondage for them. You see this pattern, and this is what Stephen is rehearsing, is this pattern of how God faithfully promises, how God faithfully provides, and how the people faithfully, unfaithfully respond. Every single time. Because it doesn't fit their desires. It doesn't scratch their itch. They want God to do it their way. We're no different today, are we? God, we want, we want you, but we want you on our terms. Not on your terms. Not absolutely trusting you. Not in faith. But show us. Let us see it. Let us see it. Let us touch it. Let us feel it. Stephen says he gave them the tent of witness, the tabernacle that would be among them that would represent God's presence. He would literally show them how he's dwelling among them. (laughs) That still wasn't good enough. It still wasn't good enough. He brought David and Solomon who established the land and erected a temple, but they still didn't understand where this was going. Stephen's point Stephen's point is that all this history is indeed important. All this history is important, but not as an object for worship. History is never an object for worship. History, if we worship, it will condemn our souls. History is not an object for worship, but for directing our hearts to a greater promise. This is what he's saying to them. God has continued to show you. God has given you His promise. He's continued to provide for you. He's continued to fulfill His promise over and over and over again. And you've continued to resist and reject because it doesn't fit with your understanding. Jesus is the fulfillment of all these types and symbols from their history, He is the promise. And yet, the people consistently rejected God, and they did so with Jesus, and they're doing so with Stephen. The second thing that we see here is that Jesus is the sacrificial lamb, he is the promise, and that he is the one who will bear the sins of the world. The tone changes dramatically as we get to verse 51. I know, you're thinking, Pastor, you really skip forward. Look, if you want to check me on that, go back and read the first 50 verses of chapter 7. I assure you, we're spot on at this point. But verse 51, something changes. He says, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. Now, it feels to me like something got left out there. That something wasn't recorded in the narrative that should have been in the narrative. I don't know what it was. Maybe there's something here that just rubbed them the wrong way, but Stephen's accusers reacted violently towards Stephen, and we hear him mirror that in his reaction toward them. He becomes animated, stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit, he says, just like your fathers did every step of the way, so you're doing now. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? Wow. Which of the prophets did your people not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one. He whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You received the covenant. You received the law. You have all this history. All these things that point you toward the promised one. You celebrate the leaders God has provided. You observe the sacrifices and the feast, yet none of it was sufficient for sin for atonement. It was only pointing you to the one that can save. Hebrews 10, verses 1 through 4 says, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, They didn't take away sin. They were pointing to the one who would take away sin. Every drop of animal blood that was shed pointed forward to the true Lamb of God who would come to take away the sin. Satisfaction by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. Because of his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. All those sacrifices were forerunners. They were all foreshadowing. They were all pointing forward to the one, the only one, sufficient to die for the sins of people. John the Baptist knew. What did he say when he saw Jesus? He looked up and saw Jesus and said, behold, what? The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's not like all the others that have gone before. He's not the same. He is the fulfillment of them. He is the one that completes what God has begun. Stephen's accusers did not understand. They did not receive God's truth. They rejected Jesus. And they were doing it again with Stephen. When they heard this, the scripture says, they ground their teeth at him. I don't know about you. My dentist would frown upon that. You would say, you need a mouth guard. Why are you grinding your teeth? It's a stress. It's anger. It's animosity. It's hatred. Murder in their hearts. This is who they were. They were filled with anger, hostility, animosity. And the scripture contrasts that with Stephen and says he is full of the Holy Spirit. They claimed to know love, obey, and honor God, but they were enthralled with their own version of religion. They were enamored with everything but the right thing. They trusted in everything but the one who could deliver them. Jesus is the sacrificial lamb, necessary, necessary for our sin. He's also the resurrected Lord. The tension here could be cut with a knife. God ministered powerfully to his faithful servant. What does he say? But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven. God gave him a vision into heaven. And he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. To those who know Christ, this world is not home. To those who are in Christ... This world is not our destination, nor the things that make up this world. The gold, the precious jewels, the experiences, whatever you want to look at. None of these things are designed to be our destination. These are not our possessions. They are things that maybe are helping point us toward our destination, which is in Christ. And it's in a new creation. Stephen saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. (laughs) The same body that the murderers battered and beat and killed. It's different now. Yes, it still bears the scars of those beatings, but it is incorruptible. It is resurrected. It is supernaturally alive. Alive never to die again. Radiant and glorified. He's standing at the right hand of God which is the place of authority, the place of rule. He's standing there, not seated. Now, this has been debated a lot. Why is he standing and not seated? Hebrews, the first chapter says that after he had completed his work, that he sat down at the right hand of God. And here he's standing. Why? Some would suggest that it indicates that he's standing as Stephen's advocate. As Stephen is being accused. All these allegations levied against him. That Jesus himself is standing and advocating, mediating on his behalf. Some say that he's standing in anticipation, ready to receive Stephen into his eternal home. I got no quibbles with either one. I think they both work. The lamb of God crucified for sin is alive. This is the point. He's not dead, he's not buried, he's alive. The very one that they were the accusers were alleging, stop preaching about his resurrection. This can't be true. We saw him die. We saw him buried. And Stephen, even as he's preaching the gospel to these people, looks up and sees the resurrected Christ in the presence of God and Jesus not only is alive but he is reigning. He is the reigning king. Behold, I see the heavens open, the son of man standing at the right hand of God. And Stephen's accusers lost it at this point. And there are a couple of things worth noting here. First, he proclaims Jesus alive and united with Yahweh. Not a competitor. Not a competitor, but in unity. They are one. He uses the title that Jesus preferred to use to describe himself, one like a son of man. This reminds us of Daniel's vision in chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Listen to what Daniel wrote. He said, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days... And was presented before him. And to him was given dominion. And glory. And a kingdom. That all people, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. Which shall not pass away and his kingdom. One that shall not be destroyed. Daniel saw one like a son of man in the presence of God. This term son of man refers to humanity. Human. One like a man. This one was given everlasting dominion, glory, kingdom, to be served by all people, nations, and languages. He's one like a human, yet he comes with the clouds of heaven, which is clearly pointing to divine authority. Hear what Jesus said about himself in Matthew chapter 24, verses 29 to 31. Here's what he said. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call. And they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. Jesus made this claim about himself in his teaching. As the son of man. He referred to himself continually as the son of man. Every time he did, it rubbed just a little bit of salt in the wound of those who were supporting Judaism. Who were opposed to him. Even as he stood before the council... The night of his trial, the high priest said, Are you the Christ, the Son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? He has committed blasphemy. They understood what he was doing, that he was connecting back to what Daniel had written about the future, the one who would be in the presence of the ancient of days, God the Father. And when they heard Stephen use this same language, they snapped. They dragged him out and began to stone him. And Stephen said, Lord, receive my spirit. And Jesus did receive his spirit. He did. Stephen is described as going to sleep, merely pointing to the temporary nature of his death. His body died, but his soul entered the presence of God. And it's been there ever since. Paul referred to him in his testimony in Acts as a servant of God. And he was standing there that day watching all of this. One day, when the Father says it's time, Jesus is going to return. And when he does... He's going to call forth Stephen's body, that battered, bruised, martyred body. it will be raised incorruptible as Jesus was because Jesus was the first fruits of resurrection. And Stephen's will follow and be reunited with his soul that's been in the presence of God for all these years. And he will live and abide in the presence of God, radiant and gloriously resurrected forever. Jesus is the promised Messiah. He is the sacrificial lamb that atones for sin. He is the resurrected Lord, the firstfruits from the grave. He is the reigning king who rules forever in his new creation. Jesus is the gracious and saving Messiah. He's redeemed countless people through the ages. And yet, and yet, and yet, there are many, many, many who reject and refuse to believe because he doesn't fit their expectation because he doesn't fit their desires they try to formulate ways to please God to earn his favor they design God's fitting their own design and all of them will fail all that we have to offer God is our sin all that we have to offer God is our rebellion our animosity our hatred We are condemned by such. But God, by His mercy and His love and grace, has made a way for us through Christ. By believing on Christ, believing His gospel, putting our trust in Him, this victorious, triumphant Son of Man, we shall be redeemed. He has not ignored His justice, but He has fulfilled His justice in Christ As he condescended and took on our debt, our sin, our penalty, in order that we might be forgiven. He who knew no sin was made sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. The cross, the tomb, the resurrection is more than history. These are not just icons that we need to remember and honor. They point to God's redeeming work for his elect. If you believe the gospel, if you repent of your sin and put your trust in Christ, you will know his forgiveness and the gift of everlasting life. How wonderful, how wonderful and awesome is God's eternal glory. How awesome is it? It's so awesome, it was worth the Son of Man's humiliation and death. It was so often, it was worth martyrs like Stephen giving their life. It's truly a glory worth dying for. The Apostle Paul stated it this way, For me to live in this present world is Christ, always Christ. To die, to leave this world and enter into a future world, God's new creation is better. Is better. To To live here now is Christ. To die and leave this world and enter the new creation is better. It's gain. Why? Because dwelling forever in the presence of God is a greater destiny than anything this world has to offer. Believe the gospel. Turn from trusting yourself. Put your trust in Christ and only in Christ today. This is something that God is working into your heart right now. Something God is speaking to you about today. I would welcome the opportunity to have that conversation with you. When this service is over, I'll be right down here. Come find me and let's talk. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for this incredible gospel. We thank you for the plan that you've unfolded throughout the ages. I pray this morning that your spirit, Lord, would work in our hearts and lives, that there be no one here today that would leave this place separated from you, but that today might be the day of salvation, the day when they throw open the doors of their hearts and embrace Christ fully and completely. Make it so, we pray. Give us this hope of forgiveness, resurrection life that stretches out before us in all of its glory and splendor. For we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.